Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Greg Bendian, your host, where we really get into some ideas and some concepts, some different areas of the music world, of the artistic domain. And today is no exception. In the past, I've had some wonderful conversations with our guest today, and he is widely recognized as an important figure in theater and opera, and one of the most important figures to me in that area. I think of him as a visual musician, an artist, and my friend, great human being, director and conceptualist. I'm happy to welcome Peter Sellers. Hi, Peter. <laughs> Greg, that's awesome. Oh my God. <laughs> I think I should be doing your introduction. That's incredible. <laughs> well, I I'm so happy. Everyone, this is my friend, Greg, who's just a total wild polymath who's receiving incredible communications from all over the universe at multiple levels constantly and who just pours it out in the kindest and most generous way wow i, I think we should just stop there okay <laughs> oh great, peter great to see you it's great to see you i mean we can't say it's the end of the pandemic but it's a a late point at a sort of moment of, of, of breathing for a moment uh, before we go through whatever the next round is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've, uh, we've tried to remain productive and we've, uh, we've tried to stay positive. Right. So I, you know, I, every time I talk to you, I, I feel very positive and, and very, very motivated, inspired. So today it's, it's great to see you and to chat. Yeah. And again, what's so great about, you know, everybody suddenly turning to Zoom and whatever, it's just that suddenly we can be in contact in ways that don't involve, you know, um, hotels and plane flights and so on and just keep conversations going, which is, uh, you know, and Zoom doesn't do everything well, just like <laughs> any human being. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but it does a few things pretty well and and actually just makes talking to each other a pleasure and not a big a big stress i kind of like seeing the face of the person i'm talking to <laughs> <laughs> yes well i mean you're you're old old school but you know <laughs> no it's the vibe thing that you know obviously is just the cool thing is to be in somebody's aura and you know we really haven't totally found the technology to recognize how auras work and how auras uh, unfold and expand and and uh, and change the space and change the whole uh, emotional temperature uh, and and that's what's great about actually being in the same place together yeah bringing people together and being able to have a real conversation about ideas. And I have so many things that I want to speak with you about today. Um, I did want to tell the audience that that in 2014, you were a recipient of the Polar Music Prize for innovation in, in, in music. And, and I'd like to read what they said when they gave you this award, because I think it, it's quite interesting and a good jumping off point. Peter Sellers shows us that classical music is not about dusty sheet music and metronomic precision, but that classical music with its violent power and complexity has fundamentally always been 
and will continue to be a way of reflecting and depicting the world. Wow. I think that's my first time hearing that. <laughs> Did you okay. not go to the ceremony? <laughs> no, I was there, but we talked about other stuff. So that's cool. <laughs> I mean, how do you feel you about know, that? Well, what was really interesting was there, you know, as always those Nobel committees in Sweden are just interesting people who have dinner together and talk about things and talk about, you know, stuff. And that year, the people on the panel were really focused on human rights. And so they were trying to, you know, say, well, how does music respond to human rights? So they were they were really inviting me there to just deal with human rights as a musical uh, imperative. And 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 what does it mean that music has stood for human rights from early days and and that it has a function that's not just decorative but that is truly uh, emblematic of what we hope we care about and people who we who have been disappeared who are being held in ways that we can't communicate and how do you put something out into the air and into the world into the vibration that recognizes justice and that uh, is actually itself the presence of justice uh and and that's one thing music does really really powerfully is call for justice so anyway that was uh, that was my sweden <laughs> and uh uh but but you know it's it's also one of these amazing times because uh, when we learned obviously in the in the pandemic that the one of the points of the pandemic was the call for for equal justice and uh, equal access equal that people's lives have equal value and equal those lives matter and to hear that in the middle of a pandemic and realize that uh, the pandemic itself was speaking about justice uh, to a human race that has difficulty hearing. Uh, that's really deep. And uh, so I think the justice movements that are underway in the last year are really, really crucial. And, and that's where music itself, again, can move past a kind of entertainment or distractive distraction function and into a function of creating focus, creating intention, creating resolve, creating commitment, creating collective sense of empowerment and urgency. And, um, and so in that sense, it's really a privilege to work with music at this moment in history. I have to say music really kicked in at the right time when this this shit went down, you know? Yes. Not surprisingly, maybe, but you know, I just thought, wow, music's there for me again. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm uh, I'm just coming back from Paris of all things. I, I've been here at home for the whole year and then suddenly 
out of nowhere, Macron opened up the theaters last month and, and things that were postponed indefinitely or, or canceled, suddenly people said, no, no, come over right now, come over right now. So I found myself getting on a plane, which was the last thing I imagined, and um, to go conduct a workshop of, uh, of amazing work, which is uh, a 14th century manuscript in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, uh, and it's the um, called the Roman de Fauvel, and it was probably made around 1320, and it has 5,000 lines of verse and 200 illuminated uh, 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 images and 168 pieces of music. And it was created uh, in the 1310s by 25-year-olds, all of whom were coming radicalized out of the University of Paris and entering official service at the court, uh, you know, in the conciergerie and stuff, and just disgusted with the corruption and the injustice and the financial, unbelievable financial dealings. And um, the expulsion of the Jews, the, I mean, you know, the, it's not, it's the era of, you know, the, the accursed kings, les rois maudits. But to have a young generation, the opening motet is, uh, says the world is ruined. Uh, it, you know, integrity was something known to previous generations, not to us. Now, normally, that's the kind of thing that old people say. Hmm. And what's incredible is exactly like at this moment, it is actually what young people are saying, is we're entering a world that has already been ruined. We're entering a world where the integrity is long gone. And um, this manuscript opens with that motet and then continues. Um, and, and it also, the the folks making it because it's a, a big collective thing it's a samizdat manuscript you couldn't nobody could distribute it because it's attacking the king and the whole administration so so it only exists as one thing so you know they didn't print parts <laughs> and so everybody has to everybody who's singing the motet has to gather around a single manuscript which we did a few Saturdays ago in the reading room of the Bibliothèque Nationale. And of course, three of the singers are reading upside down <laughs> and, uh, and it's pretty wild. But at any piece of music, people thought, oh no, this would be good, let's put that in. Oh, if you're gonna put that in, let's put this in. And then of course, a super brilliant young uh, composer, Philippe de Vitry, created these avant-garde motets, which are three different lines of material, uh, three different texts, all sung simultaneously with equal urgency. So you get the total chaos of what it means to be alive right now. And and you can't, you're listening to one and then suddenly the other comes takes over and, and you're listening to them all simultaneously and one isn't in the background, they're all happening in the foreground. And, and of course it's music for the eye, not for the ear. It's music that a community of people gathered around that manuscript are discussing everything in it. And so it's not about a finished performance. It's about the community building of all of us 
creating this simultaneous reality and acknowledging it together and discussing how this intersects with that and this is on top of that. And these things are inextricable. And that's super powerful. And, and, but meanwhile, they're also recycling music from a century before that people really looked up to the, 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 the Ecole de Notre Dame, the kind of great era of Philippe Le Chancelier. And so they take, you know, a couple of the greats from a century ago and they redo them in contemporary terms. And of course, the great uh, Lay, which is, you know, 14 minute, which for medieval music, 14 minute piece is like, you know, a Bruckner, Mahler symphony. And, and the title of it, Veritas Equitas. It's about truth and equality. And it's sung at the top of people's lungs. And it has this incredible power. And it is what um, 25 year olds in 1310 were, uh, were putting forward. So it's a, this manuscript is not designed for a performance. It's not so you can't you know, perform it. But we've created a version that moves through it. And, uh, and it is super radical. And it is totally focused on equality. It is totally focused on environmental activism. It's entirely against a corrupt financial system. And it's entirely about um, women's rights. One amazing section is um, 12 Elekine. And Elekine is French for the Erlkönig, <laughs> the Elk King. Uh, uh, you know, the, of mythology, these women come out of the forest, out of the woods. And there's a 25 minute sequence where 13 women discuss how they've been deeply hurt in love, searching for an equal relationship, and instead having lifelong damage and both discussing subtle and subtle microaggressions and real violence and the whole range of um, what you were hoping for from love and what in fact did not occur and um, it's a it's a pretty astounding work uh, I should just say that Fauvel, it's called Ramon de Fauvel. Fauvel is a horse, centaur, some kind of four-legged beast that is the king of France and is running everything. And, uh, and all the courtiers, the church, the financial people, everybody are stroking his hair and combing his pelt and brushing his tail and his mane. And that, of course, is where we get the expression in English to curry favor, because they're all um, trying to get stuff from him, flattering him, and, and as they brush him, whispering in his ear. And um, he decides that he wants to marry, have as his queen, Fortuna, who holds the whole Wheel of Fortune, and uh, and she says, get out of here. Don't touch me. Don't come near me. Shut up. 
<laughs> I am not interested in you. Yes, you're up here. But that's just because my dad, who's God, and I can really see what kind of person someone is by how they behave when they have power and money. Mm. And so we're just looking at you. Believe me, next stop is going to be down there. <laughs> and that's also where you can tell what somebody's really made of when they have no power and no money. And that's all that's happening, so get real. And the um, and her takedown goes way beyond the New York Times editorial page. It's really, it's really shocking. And and she says, but if you need to marry someone, vainglory is available. And so there's a giant wedding of Favel and vainglory, and we've invited the world's uh, our version invites the world's 657 billionaires to uh, attend the wedding uh, with all of their wedding feasts, with all of their dietary needs catered for. And um, and simultaneously, the wedding the wedding entertainment, and that's what's shocking, are the Helikines, the 13 women showing up, talking about when love is not love. And then everybody in Paris hears this incredible celestial music. And, the text says every single person in Paris looks up into the sky and a ladder is coming down to the Ile de la Cité in the middle of Paris to the top of the building and angels are going up and down and they're singing this incredible chant of Daughters of Jerusalem and the angels have come to prepare the virtues for a giant joust with the vices and so after the wedding there's a full out grand battle with armor and horses and lances between the virtues and the vices and the virtues finally kind of win but everybody's bloody muddy and you know the they're busy trying to tear the the vices out of their armor it's a, it's a mess and um, there are these incredible motets that feel like both January 6th and the aftermath, which are this, you know, raucous, simultaneous, apocalyptic sense of, you know, futurist and past, you know, crazy jumble of madness and rage. And then, um, and then the after the battle, where you're just covered in mud and winning doesn't feel good because actually to win over these people is not the point because they're your community, they're your family. And so you win, you know, as always, you know, a military victory is really empty and just sets up the next round of violence. And the motet about walking the street all night and feeling lost after you've quote unquote won is very intense. And then there's a further motet, which is after you finish looking at your feet, look up and you see that incredible medieval image, cosmic image of the perfection of the universe. Uh, and the universe bends towards justice. And Philippe de Vitry, because there was no way to show change of rhythm, 
uh, in musical notation. So he made all the notes that are in two, he printed in red ink. And all the notes that are in three are in black ink. And that's what's giving you these different trajectories of the planets. <laughs> and uh, in three parts, moving simultaneously. And a motet giving you this image of cosmic simultaneity, syncopation, and perfection. And and then you turn the page and there's a giant there's a giant fountain that guess what? It's the fountain of youth. And it's formed by gargoyle gargoyles barfing into a big bowl. And all of the vices are licking their wounds and they jump into the fountain of youth and take a bath and they reemerge young and magnificent again with perfect skin like Jared Kushner. They're ready to attack the next generation. <laughs> anyway, it's an incredible manuscript. And so that's what I've been working on the last few weeks. And it's I have so many questions, though. Kind of awesome. <laughs> and I didn't see that coming. It just kind of just arrived. Wow. So in the 1300s, would this have had an impact on society? Well, you know, it's 1300s, 1320, everything's in a pretty horrifying state. And, you know, the actual scandals of the time and the public executions, the drawing and quartering, uh, the it was grotesque and it, it ripped through the whole uh, society. And of course, the financial collapse was very real. And then everything was followed in in the 30s by the plague. And so this was a serious takedown of an entire civilization. And these were the last, you know, this was the last gasp. And by about 1350, 1360, there were about 70 copies of this manuscript that were circulating. <laughs> so it, it, it actually, it moved Samizdat style, it moved underground. And, you know, it probably could be acknowledged in some official locations, but mostly not. But it, it did have this amazing underground life. And of course, um, by the end of the century with the Avignon popes and everything, um, the the 14th century avant-garde really took off. So it's the 14th century is this avant-garde century for music. It's this, it's this, and it starts with this social uh, re revolt of these 25 year olds uh, in 1310, 1320. And by the end of the century, it's just a whole new world of what music sounds like and how music behaves. And so how was this presented while you were there, just in an enclosed workshop or how was it, how was it working? Well, what was beautiful was we, we made a decision uh, a couple of years ago and turned out to be really the right one, I think, uh, to have no instruments and to just make the evening a cappella and to, um, invite seven women to sing it. No men's voices because, you know, I wanted to take away Mr. Trump's Twitter account. And so uh, I didn't want to hear him. I wanted to meet him only through the eyes of the women. And uh, and then um, 
and then wildly, I mean, the the to hear these really deep, intense, concerted pieces sung by seven women has this just the the, the sheer sound cuts through the air and really cuts goes right through your body. It's unbelievably visceral. And uh, and the kind of sustained intensity. And what's great is these women are all have advanced degrees in medieval music. And so what's cool is, you know, you look at the page and there are like 14 notes. And you think, what? You know, and then that turns into a 14 minute piece of music. Uh, and it really is when you and Ben Bagby of Sequentia is is the music director and of course it's just it's I have no idea how to read this music how to read this notation and by the time Ben is done it's like John Coltrane does my favorite things <laughs> you know it's like it turns into a 14 minute piece of music it has nothing to do with Julie Andrews <laughs> and and my favorite things has morphed into this incredible cosmic vision and that's what these seven women can do with Ben is that is that you know somebody takes the the fifth somebody does the Bourdon somebody everybody's doing something and then suddenly you get this unbelievable explosion of rich sound and vibrating at all these levels and uh, consonances and dissonances and and it's it's just overwhelming and by the time you get to a motet like Garrett Gallus which Ben Ben Bagby calls the Beethoven's ninth of the 14th century. I mean, it is just colossal. It is immense. And again, we're so used to thinking in, as they say, global terms, globalized universe. But, you know, excuse me, these people are thinking cosmically. You know, your your act, everything is a cosmic vision. Everything has a cosmic vision of moral truth of you know of of spiritual clarity uh and and of um and of course like medieval art super refreshing you know part of the manuscript is pornographic street music <laughs> like you know crazy street cries uh you know the there's one amazing motet which is Fuck no, I am not gonna touch Favel's ass crack, even for all his money and all his gold. <laughs> okay, so that's the basic line moving underneath. That's the that's the tenor line of the motet. And the other two lines are hymns to the Virgin. <laughs> so <laughs> you're getting this amazing social range and wealth and depth. But it's also like you know people protesting outside a outside the Federal Reserve or outside a police station or outside uh, Exxon headquarters and protesting loud and clear, and then the cops start you know arresting people and handcuffing them and putting them into vans, and that's when the the prayers to the Virgin begin really intensely. And and then you're in the world of all the singing pouring out of the Birmingham jail. You're in the world of Cesar Chavez and the and the and the United Farm Workers carrying the 
the altar of the Virgin of Guadalupe on their protest marches. And so that, that kind of phenomenal intensity of meaning and of purpose and of spiritual clarity in a time of unspeakable materialism and corruption, it's pretty overwhelming. And says a lot to us today. Well, uh, what's super cool is the 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 kind of again we're into this. Oh, that's my opinion. That's your opinion. This cosmic frame is pretty phenomenal. And the other thing that's really beautiful is it's not a work written by us from a single viewpoint because it's created by a collective of people. You've got all kinds of tones and textures and points of view and, 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 and energies all alive in one manuscript. So, so and, and again, that's even without even talking about the visual stuff, without even talking about the poetry. So we've invited Alice Goodman, who wrote Nixon in China and the Death of Klinghoffer Libretti, um, and Alice is writing the uh, connecting texts between the pieces of music uh, and uh, making sure that they're uh, not locked in 1310, <laughs> but they're, they're completely discussing what's going on at this moment. And so that will create, I think, the correct amount of immediacy and frisson. Mm -hmm. And she's wicked and she's hilarious and she is absolutely um devastating and so that that will that will be very powerful and then these seven women putting this music forward with just full and i think what's so you know great about acapella is um i mean medieval music is beautiful but already with the instrumentation we go to a miniaturized place and and you know, this manuscript is the single largest manuscript from the whole 14th century in the Bibliothèque Nationale. It's it's immense, and these are these are young people with a huge vision. So uh, the a cappella suddenly allows the immensity and scope of a single human being to be overwhelming, and then a small collective can change the world. And what do we know of the individuals that created this? Not one thing. At all? Well, I mean, yeah, Philippe de Vitry became very celebrated as a composer and as a, as a ultimately as a cleric and, and, uh, and, and political figure. But uh, so, yes, we, he, his name is left. Uh, but of course, nothing in this manuscript is signed by anybody. And we only know later because there are copies of that music, and it's it's identified with him. And again, we can trace the the music that they're recycling from earlier eras, uh, uh, the Philippe Le Chancelier stuff. But most of it's anonymous, and most of it is is uh, um, again this sense of people working together, which is very very exhilarating. I have to say that your your interface with French culture is something that fascinates 
because there's a few instances I wanted to bring up with you while I have you today. One is your work with Jean-Luc Godard. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, take your pick, but the, but the other is the final Messiaen, which is the St. Francis. Wow, Greg. And they're both big figures for me. I mean, I, you know, Godard and, and the French New Wave and the, and the French cinema, tremendous for me. Also, uh, I'm just a huge Olivier Messiaen guy and everything he does is of interest to me. But I was not as familiar with the St. Francis piece. And then I caught some of your version with Esapeka which is on YouTube, folks, by the way, the, the uh, St. Francis opera, which I guess my first question is, and there are so many, but my first question is, was Maestro still around when this was going to be put together? Because I know it's in 92 at the end of his life. It was a very intense time, and uh, he was fragile and... and uh, I only met him once. Uh, uh, we were taken to his apartment and in Paris, and you know his apartment was already a fantastic cosmic space. With every room had super crazy intergalactic wallpaper from the fifties. <laughs> it was like just these planets whirling by and stars, and it was like, but it was also perfect French fifties stuff. <laughs> and 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 um, and of course uh, his his uh, his wife was you know completely uh, you know taking care of everything and solving everything and so on and so on. But I was really there just to get his permission to do the piece because uh, when he he was you know essentially you know, he's one of those figures who's ultra radical and ultra conservative at the same time and his catholicism was extremely conservative and his musical writing was extremely radical and so i he felt you know in the original production which was such a, a mess was he insisted that everybody reproduce the giotto pictures of saint francis the murals um on the stage of the Paris Opera, which of course just created a giant, ugly, stupid piece of kitsch. And, 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 you know, because that's not a work of art, it's a, it's a copy of a work of art, it's a piece of kitsch. And so, um, anyway, that was tedious. Um, and this was kind of the next major production of it. And so 20 years Did later, you see the original? No, I did not. Uh, I heard a lot about it because I had friends who were there, but, uh, but I have to say, uh, and there's a recording of it, so you can kind of hear it, but it, it's it's hard to take. And um, but everybody's being obedient. And so there's no there's no there's very little inspiration in the air. Uh, and it's it's heavy. It's heavy. And um, so I, of course, intended to not do something with the Chato images at all. <laughs> And so it was a very, it's a very tense, and I really, and I, I was using a lot of video, 
And uh, so I wanted to explain video to him, which he couldn't understand and couldn't imagine because they didn't have a television. So, um, so that was a real, after a while I gave up trying to explain video art. And I really just said to him, you know, because I tried to connect it to stained glass. I said, you know, so much of your music is about, you know, the way light comes through color and that the light is moving, you know, just as the, the, as the weather is moving and it's through stained glass and, and light and dark and all these different gradations and movements are occurring all the time. And I said, well, video is like that with these pixels. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we, that did not work. <laughs> but... But I finally just said to him, you know, in one sentence, I said, Shermatra, um, you're telling this 13th century story, um, 14th century, okay, <laughs> just off a little bit, but, um, but you're not using music of the 13th century to tell it. Quite. So, why should we tell it with images of the 13th century? And so he was quiet for a while. And then he said, Vous avez raison. And I could leave the building. <laughs> uh, but that was the kind of breakthrough moment where he just, he realized that, of course, he was using music that was completely contemporary to tell the story and and to express these spiritual truths and to resonate in the environmental power and immediacy of saint francis's life work and so he got that he really did get that and then uh, we went away to start working and he he passed away and so what was meant to be quite celebratory turned out to be a, a bit also a sad occasion. And, and, and his wife was really devastated. And she was at all the rehearsals or the later ones, but, but really emotionally, deeply, deeply uh, hurt and, and in mourning. I mean, she was not really able to follow. And she she had a lot of difficulty with what we did. <laughs> she really couldn't stand it. But it's it's also because she was still in mourning for him and his passing was too recent. And uh, so there was a that was that was the souffrance that was definitely in the room. Um and um but Seiji Ozawa had conducted the uh, the world premiere in Paris, and he was the music director of the Boston Symphony, where and where I was living in Boston. And he came back and did three of the tableaux in concert with the Boston Symphony and with members of the original cast. And hearing that music in concert, you know, played by the Boston Symphony was just staggering. And so it became, you know, on the list of things I have to do before, we all have to do before we die. So that was, that was really how the, that connection got made. And, you know, now it's a piece that, you know, it's hard to live with because it's six hours long and you have to be there because I think Messian's music doesn't respond well to recording. 
Uh, it's exactly one of those things where the sheer impact of the sound, the physical impact of the sound, has to be like you're in the presence of a mountain. And a mountain on video is nothing. <laughs> like a video, a mountain is this big. Uh, whereas a real mountain is its own real scale. And Messian's music, you need the, the 200 people making it to feel the physical impact and energy of that music. And it can't come out of two speakers. It can't, it, it has to actually vibrate the room and you also have to feel the difficulty of playing it. You need to actually realize that people are holding themselves to superhuman standards in order to realize a Messian score. And so the spiritual aura and intensity is that we're all here together in the presence of something superhuman and that we're all being tested to the limits of our skill and our endurance. And that's what makes Messian's music overwhelming and unforgettable. And even when it's a work for solo organ and you can't even see the person laboring, just these sheer, you know, just shattering amounts of sound in a super acoustic reson acoustically resonant space, you know, creates this time outside of time and space outside of space. And um, so in our period of, you know, the art of the possible, <laughs> you know, well, Messian is the art of the impossible. Messian is the art of this will tax you. This is beyond what you can absorb. And, and because in fact, most of the most important things in life are beyond what you can absorb or endure. And so the, uh, that scope and scale was so crucial. And the Salzburg Festival is one of the only places that had the, the means to put together, you know, something that could match his incredible, uh, uh, magnificence of vision and and immersive space in the Felsenreitschule at the, the Salzburg Festival, which is literally the side of the mountain. And so you're facing the, the rock wall of the mountain itself. And we could open the roof and there were trees in the sky and birds. And you began to, you could really be in the presence of Messian's scale and Messian's urgency of a rock being a rock and meanwhile growing things growing do you know his grand canyon piece oh god yes yes <laughs> so, you know so this is a man in love with with the immense wonder of nature yes and uh, i i'm hoping in the next few years uh to undertake um, the piece he wrote just before St. Francis, which is basically the same orchestration, but it's about four hours shorter uh, called the Transfiguration. But it's that same mountain music where Jesus takes, you know, a few disciples, Peter and James and John up into a mountain. And at the top of the mountain, there's weather and light and incredible light and then suddenly there's Elijah and there's Moses with Jesus and you get 
suddenly all of time across centuries and millennia are suddenly only exist in the present on top of this mountain. And the disciples are blinded and they can't even look. It's the light is so overwhelming. And uh, they look away, they look down. And then they look up again and it's just Jesus standing there saying, I think we should go down now. And, and as they climb back down the mountain, he says, please don't tell anyone what you saw. Messian wrote this uh, kind of about a two-hour piece just of that with this shattering music of the mountain, the light, the wind, of course, the birds, uh, of that day where all of time arrived in a single blazing moment. So I'm working on that. <laughs> That that's that's something I look forward to. You know, Peter, you more than almost any other artist that I can think of has proven time and time again to me something that I strongly believe, which is that the great art exists outside of its time. So it has its moment in its in its genesis. It has that the cultural, the societal connections, but the greatest pieces are pieces of vision that will take perhaps hundreds of years for us to really take some sort of hold of. And even then, you know, it's tenuous, but I, I, again, going back to the dusty sheet music, you know, it's just, you step outside of that. And we all, I think the best of us attempt to do that. You step away you step outside after you've been completely immersed, because I know you, because I'm looking at that room behind <laughs> you with all that material that you've immersed yourself in. But then it's a response and it's a big picture. And that's really what I love about your work. Well, you know, it's an incredible privilege. I mean, basically uh, most composers, um, you know, died thinking they had failed because most of their work was not really heard in their lifetime and not heard the way they heard it. Uh, and and again, um, it's one of the reasons I, to paraphrase what you just said, why I can't stand, you know, kind of period productions because Mozart was doing everything he could to escape the 18th century. <laughs> and so to make him go back to the 18th century is cruel. <laughs> you know, most of these composers were, you know, like Bach was writing for a future. He was not writing about this week. He's writing, he's saying, no, no, we have to make a future. This is about how do you make a future? And so there, most of this music is articulating a future. Uh, and 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 of course, therefore, was either incomprehensible or a threat to people who were alive at the time. And I think it's just so crazy that after the first time out with the Matthew Passion, basically Bach spent the rest of his life writing for people who are not yet born, and said, "I'm not going to fuss with the people who are around right now, and I'm going to write music and put it on the shelf, and one day, the people who need it will find it." And, and, and so much of the history of music is about, you know, something that 
could not be realized in the composer's lifetime. Uh, and and I, it's a thrill to be able to be part of the future that these folks were trying to reach. And you know, then- Varez comes to mind when you mention that. Well, so, you know, and again, what you always want to do is say, okay, what was not available to them that they were looking for? What can we, what can we do that they were hoping for? What can, what can actually, and one of the things I feel really strongly about is censorship because most, most artists in most centuries in most locations have written under very, very intense conditions of censorship. And and right now, I mean, I was going to say that about, you know, most of our lifetime in America, that's not mostly been the case. But of course, we're moving back into that realm where you have to watch what you say and uh, and think who's going to listen and who's going to get it and who is not going to get it and how it's going to be used. So censorship is now coming back in our age of total surveillance and a random thing you said, you know, that's suddenly out there on the Internet. <laughs> It's like shows up as some spore of evil. And so so one just has to really um, nonetheless say we can speak about things that most people were not able to speak about when they were creating these works. And and so it's our duty to articulate these things in a way that the original creators couldn't. Meanwhile, the other side of it is they can say things that we don't dare say. <laughs> so it's actually quite interesting because it it works in both directions. And and it's really powerful to have your ancestors comment on your behavior. <laughs> so it's like, oh, right. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Uh, well, so that's powerful. Yeah. And it's funny because you, you in a way you're saying, oh, I'm not saying that they said that. Yeah, and I and I think that's it was you know God knows, most artists used deliberately set what they were doing in the past, so that they could, again, just say that say no this isn't me I'm just talking about what it was like in Spain, mm. you know, 150 years ago, uh, which is you know Mozart's thing with Don Giovanni or Moliere's thing with Don Juan, um, and so Spain became the the the, the location of you know the. The kind of strange film noir that people were trying to work on, um, but the the other the other thing that I think you you really you've got to recognize is that these people these pieces have waited a long time to speak, and so um, you want to give them everything you can, and 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 again not deal with how they were received or perceived when they were new but because that is very limited but you want to say okay what 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 was so beyond the time that they appeared in and and can we meet them there what were they trying to say to us can we say that now can we bring that forward? Can we progress to this level that they were pointing to? And so many things, you know, are a certain moment are inconceivable, like reparations. And the day is going to come when reparations are not inconceivable. They're actually with us. 
and where a lot of the truly evil stuff that is accepted and taken for granted will one day be unthinkable. And you say, can you believe people did that? And so again, it's important to push against what is at the moment unthinkable mm. and to think it and to actually make the gestures towards enacting it. Uh, and if in that, if that's reparations, if that's, you know, a larger understanding of wellness and moving beyond a kind of materialized materialistic sense of medicine. Um, I mean, what's ex very exciting right now, or, you know, is social medicine is now finally a movement. Narrative medicine is a movement. And you realize, right, medicine, you know, wellness is a story. And illness is a story. And it's how you tell that story to yourself and others. And what what is the story of what we're struggling with? It's really, really crucial. And so it's not just a vaccine. I mean, yes, it's a vaccine. Thank God for the vaccines. But the vaccine is not the whole story. What is the story of what we're struggling with? That has to be told. And that's really interesting because, you know, we are so bad at articulating what we're really going through right now. Hmm. The press can't do it the politicians can't do it nobody is able to put their finger on the depth of loss on the scope and um, one of the other things I've been working on a lot is Heinrich Schutz uh, who as you probably know is a young musician uh, went to Venice and and had and was one of uh, Gabrielli's students, and you know went to those was there for those incredible blasts of brass and choirs in Saint Mark's Cathedral, and, and like had his ears ringing, and went to Germany, went back to Germany, said we have to do this stuff, <laughs> and he did wrote these incredible the Psalms of David. These early pieces are just explosions of multiple choruses, multiple instrumental groups, these incredible uh, polyphony and outer space music, all this stuff. And then, um, and you know, he worked at a level no German musician before or after worked. And, uh, and then 30 years war, and then the plague and Shakespeare Shakespeare, Schutz spent the second half of his life writing for Continuo, three musicians max and one or two singers. And as an 80 year old man, he wrote these passions, the Matthew Passion, the Luke Passion, the John Passion for four performers. <laughs> I mean, because he had to learn with the budget cuts. He had to learn with the fact that you're in a war that the people you wanted in your course are dead and the plague has taken the rest of them. And suddenly you have to do all of this spectacular stuff with just the handful of survivors. And, um, and uh, earlier this year, uh, I lost my dad in January, uh, not to COVID, but just, just he was in Phoenix, I was in Los Angeles. We were in the two COVID hotspots we couldn't go near each other. We couldn't, I couldn't see him. I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't, it was like a whole 
thing. And, and right now we have literally hundreds of thousands of people all around the world who didn't say goodbye. There were no ceremonies. There were no exchanges. And so what is the art that we're going to make to say farewell? What is the art we're going to make that acknowledges the scope of the loss and the weight of it and the feeling of it once we've let the Novocaine wear off? And, and the, um, and we, we don't use these deaths for something, but we actually realize the deaths are a way, much bigger, bigger affliction. And so one of the things that I'm a bit obsessed with is uh, in the Thirty Years' War and in the middle of the plague, there was a local official in Dresden who was a musician and was in Schutz's little choruses. And uh, he knew he was dying and he commissioned a sculptor to carve for him a coffin out of copper and painted with gold and black and 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 he chose a series of passages about death and um and it's really they're like there's one that goes above the face there's another that goes by the feet there's another that's placed by the hands all on this coffin and uh and then he commissioned schutz to write a piece for the funeral that had these same texts and schutz produced the first german requiem using these texts and it's called musikalische exequien which is basically means a musical exit and what does it mean to have exit music in this world and uh and anyway just to say the first part of the piece is like 25 minutes long and it's all these people stepping forward like a community each stepping forward with a line or two sometimes it's a single voice or two voices or three or four and then sometimes it's a small group sometimes it's just it feels like a, a random memorial service where people are just impromptu stepping forward at the same time it's a german requiem hmm. meanwhile then there's the funeral oration and after the oration the next piece is a motet in two parts uh so one half of the community is on one side of the 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 the, the coffin and the other half is on the other side and they're going back and forth over the body of the person who's left and the conversation is moving over them like a like a bridge and reaching across and then the third piece which is truly mind-blowing uh is should stations groups of women each surrounding a baritone out across the different spaces in the church up into the loft and then outside the building and he has the group left around the coffin continue to sing 
And then he has, not even in polyphony, it's this crazy mystical music from outer space that you're just kind of hearing. And the sound of these women's voices leading a baritone starts to move outside the coffin, outside the church, across the church, up into the loft, and then outside the building. And you feel the spirit of the dead has been lifted and removed from the building, removed from the coffin, removed from this body, and the spirit has been translated. And you're in the presence of this sonic experience that's other voices while the main group is singing. There are other voices and other presences in the room. So I'm... Uh, I'm working on that. <laughs> Peter, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. No, no, it, it all worked out. I mean, in the sense that, you know, it was a, it was time and he chose it. But it was just one of those things of, of you know, I, I was in a fairly modest situation. But of course, it makes you think of the people who were not and for whom this was not by choice but this was a nightmare and uh and a nightmare of no touching not even being in the room not even seeing not even holding somebody's hand so um i think our generation of artists has a lot to work on right now there's no telling what's going to happen in terms of artistic expression as a result of what we've been through and I think of my own work and, and even how it's changed a little bit already in terms of urgency, in terms of uh, focus, in terms of uh, importance, if that's not too vain a word, but just sort of, you know, what do you, well, what do you want to say? Necessity and usefulness. I think yeah. those are two things that, you know, I really try and keep in mind is what is needed, what is necessary, and what is useful. And can we be a lot more useful right now? And the short answer is yes. And what is necessary is a pretty impressive and serious list of what is necessary right now. You know, you mentioned uh, Mozart earlier, and it's, it's interesting to me that you worked on uh, a production of his Unfinished, opera, the fragments that he left behind around 1780, he was working on something called Das Serail? Oh my God, well, that you mean Zaid, which, which, Zaid. which became Zaid, yeah. Yeah, well, always was Mozart, you know, the finished and the unfinished is a little mysterious uh, in, in a lot of Mozart. And, and because, yeah, and you know it when you're making new things yourself you know you barely get something on and you think oh my god <laughs> uh, what what else could this be what else could this have been and um and so the um the uh uh the question is really with mozart uh he started writing this piece called zaid which essentially is his anti-slavery work and it's very directly in touch with anti-slavery movements 
and it's set among a group of slaves and it's one slave speaking to another and then there are two of them who are a movement and then they speak to a third and there are three of them that are a movement and then they bring someone else along and there are four and literally the piece goes from solo arias to duets to trios to the famous quartet that ends it and that's mozart's first breakthrough quartet what does it mean that four people are singing and what it means for mozart and what he used quartets to do and greg you've stopped me if we've talked about this before but you know it is my obsession which is the uh uh haydn and mozart were not just musicians but they were in the masonic movement which was the democratic liberation movement in europe fascinating and and, and you know so thomas jefferson and benjamin franklin and so on were all members and Mozart in the last year of his life wrote two pieces for glass harmonica, the instrument invented by Benjamin Franklin. So, I mean, this what they were connected. And, you know, and so they have Thomas Jefferson saying, all, all, all people are created equal. And you know, they see the example of the American Revolution, you know, 1776 and the 1780s, these people are in Europe are still stuck. How come we haven't done this yet? How can we still have our damn kings and queens? How come we haven't made this move? And so the, the Free, Freemasons movement in, in, in the Vienna area, of course, had you know incredible intellectuals. These were the intellectuals that were going to create the first democracies in Europe. And two composers were in the room. And you have this you know, expression of you know, all, all people are created equal. How can you prove that? You can't. You, you absolutely cannot give evidence of that. And Haydn and Mozart took that on as an artistic challenge, which I think is one of the important things we do as artists is how can you demonstrate something that nobody yet has seen? It's a reality that we, we know is true, but we haven't seen it. And the two of them basically invented the string quartet. And we said, okay, we're gonna show equality and what it means that four lines are equal, that if one person leaves, the whole structure collapses, that it requires conversation, it requires everybody being attentive to everybody else. It requires, you know, a, 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 a sense of incipient harmony and mutual interest. And, you know, all of the complicated things that a string quartet actually requires. And then Mozart, way before Haydn, said, okay, now <laughs> that's nice for stringed instruments, I want to talk about human beings. And so with Zaid, he made the three slaves who were trying to escape sing in a quartet with their slave master. And suddenly that quality of equal attention, that everybody has to pay attention to everyone else, that something has to be shared or it will break. was this revolutionary moment in abolitionism. And then Mozart in Idomeneo made it fathers and children and men and women, singing as equals, each having to listen to each other and respond in kind. 
and frequently ending up singing the same music because that is the music. And then he moved it further, obviously, to, uh, you know, uh, Figaro and Don Giovanni and, and these visionary, visionary uh, uh, quartets, which were all about how people who want to kill each other actually need each other deeply and are the solution to each other's healing. Anyway, that's um, a little digression, but <laughs> just to say very uh, interesting. that's, that's what I was working on in Zaid. And so I, I took, I was obsessed with it. Mozart was, of course, he's 23. So when you're 23, you're super angry and furious with everyone. And you're, you can't believe how corrupt the, the official systems are. And you want to be a radical. And um, I mean, you are radical. And so this piece, Zaid, is such a, is, is quite amazing. He was also writing simultaneously the, the, the stage music to something called Tamos, King of Egypt, which was, again, the same way that we have all the Egyptian symbols on the US $1 bill. This, this, Egyptian, this Egyptian revival uh, in the 18th century was, again, about imagining another system of government, another system of spiritual uh, uh, illumination that could go inside real enlightenment, an enlightened government. And so I put that piece is also kind of a bunch of fragments. So I put the two pieces together to make one finished okay. piece. And uh, and that music is super wild. It is just wild. And then Mozart was planning to move to Vienna. And everybody, all his friends said, excuse me, if you're going to bring that stuff to Vienna, it will never work. You need to make a comedy. And that's that's what the story of what happens the next round with Mozart. <laughs> Put the rage aside. The rage is not going to get you anywhere. Well, Peter, a couple more things, please. Um, can we talk about your film with Godard, King Lear, 1987? Oh my talk God. about multiple voices. I mean, you're, you're, you're layering layer upon layer of voices and, and meaning and and just putting the audience out there to, to fend for themselves. And I love that. I mean, I remember attending a lecture by Steve Reich when I was a student and he talked about Charles Ives and a couple of other things. I think even William Carlos Williams. And he said, when I don't get it, that's not the composer's problem. That's my problem. I need to get it. I need to figure out how to get it. I need to, to do the work to engage, to connect. And I sat with your King Lear for a while, and, and I should tell our listeners, Burgess Meredith is in it, one of my all-time favorite actors. Woody Allen is in this film, among other people. You are acting as the son, the great, great, great grandson of Shakespeare. <laughs> In it. And Molly Ringwald is incredible. And Molly Ringwald's in it. So what was it like working with Godard on that? Oh, my God. Well, there are lots and lots of stories, of course. But just to say, when I was a freshman in college, uh, I was in the wrong class and I transferred midway in the term into a seminar that was uh, taught by the same professor, Alfred Gazzetti, a beautiful, beautiful filmmaker. Um, which took Vivre Savi, 
a Godard film from, I think, 1966, and spent 15 weeks looking frame by frame mm. at one movie. And <clears throat> every music choice, every literary choice, every image choice, researching all of it. So you could source all of it. You could see every source piece of source material that created this film. To look at a single work of art in that kind of detail was just, of course, mind-blowing and opened my whole life. But also to see inside of Jean-Luc Godard's unbelievably difficult choices, <laughs> just why he, of course, as always in life, made the difficult choice. Because the easy choice is not going to get you there. Mm. And the difficult choice is usually what life is asking you to make. And you rarely want to make it. And some artists make the difficult choice. And that would be Jean-Luc. And uh, so, of course, I memorized his works and just became obsessed with them. And then, ironically, some years later, Tom Letty, who was producing uh, these kind of middle, middle, late period Godard movies, had signed up. It's the famous uh, uh, deal signed on a on a cocktail napkin in a bar in Cannes uh, that Jean-Luc said, I will make for $1 million uh, King Lear with uh, Norman Mailer as King Lear, his daughter as the daughters, and to a screenplay written by Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer wrote a kind of screenplay of a mafia thing, you know. And uh, Godard flew Norman Mailer to Switzerland and they did one take of one scene and Mailer left the set <laughs> and quit. And or Godard fired him, who knows what. And um, and they went home. <laughs> and suddenly Tom Luddy had a movie that <laughs> needed to be made. Um, and I knew King Lear inside and out because I spent a lot of my life working on King Lear in lots of contexts. I did my own last production at Harvard was King Lear and uh, very intense. And I ended up playing Lear in a crazy way. And then uh, and then I was really obsessed with uh, Kozintsev's great film of Lear that was, you know, with the soundtrack by Shostakovich and the translation of Lear by Pasternak. That is one of the great, great, great films ever made. I knew that film pretty inside out as well. So I actually then met Jean-Luc <laughs> the morning he was shooting Woody Allen. <laughs> oh. And, and uh, he said, come to the shoot. And, uh, and, and he didn't know what, what he should be doing. So he, he, he decided it would be two sonnets. And he said, you go explain these to him. And what he said, what is this? <laughs> What does this mean? Why am I saying this? <laughs> Jean-Luc was gone. I was the only person left. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> uh, and, um, and that's pretty much how a lot of the shooting went with King Lear. He fired Burgess and, and Molly uh, about the third day of shooting uh, and said, get rid of the actors. But again, with never talking to them once just said you go talk to them and um so it was very intense and meanwhile 
in order to get some more of King Lear into the film, I flew back that week to New York to work with David Warlow and with Malachek. And we read lines from King Lear that I thought would be good to have in the movie. And so those voiceovers that you're hearing all through are those two great actors uh, uh, whose Shakespeare is just incredible. Um, meanwhile, the actual shooting with Jean-Luc was completely wild and and always unexpected, and you never knew what was going to happen. And he flew us there to France on the Concorde when that still existed. And then we sat in an airport hotel for three days. <laughs> what? And there was still no script. Uh, <laughs> and then we arrived. Everything was, you know, it maximum last minute improvisation and just in his head. And and then once he got rid of everybody, I stuck around and we started to think together. Every day he would write incredible things and say, well, how would you do that in English? And, you know, my English is crude trying to get what he's, you know, his French is so precise and and and, you know, and very French. So he, so that film became a, a very intense film that was made in the edit, which you can feel, and and in and is very. Uh, so it becomes a, a kind of appropriately for King Lear a, a very lonely, intense work by someone who's quite misanthropic, in the King mm -hmm. Lear sense and who is impatient with everyone. And of course, to be with Jean-Luc, it's one of the greatest experiences of my life. But I barely opened my mouth for the time I was with him because he's so daunting. He's the, simply the most intelligent person you will ever meet in your life. And his light, the, the intensity from his eyes is blazing at full, full, full power every moment. And anything you say is just witheringly stupid. And he just looks at you like, what? <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, the next thing he says is staggeringly profound. And so you're, and you're with somebody who's so, so most of our time, nobody dared to speak because he was just, Jean-Luc was silent and then he would, but there are so many lessons in my life from that film. And that film is of course, one of the great films ever made because most people are making a kind of work of kitsch. They're imitating what they think Shakespeare should be. Godard refuses to say what, 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 how do we imitate Shakespeare? Godard just took those themes and discovered them on his own terms. And with incredible courage, and incredible intensity, and clarity of vision. And I mean, he photographed Molly Wingwald so beautifully, you just kind of can't believe it. And of course, then to put Virginia Waves, the Wolf's The Waves into King Lear, of course. Well, like, yes. And to really actually let Shakespeare literally move across the centuries was just so beautiful and liberating and visionary. And of course, to say that if it's Shakespeare, it's all about sound. And so liberating the soundtrack, I think that's one of the great movies where, you know, for me all my life, Jean-Luc's great example that I used in opera all the time was liberate the soundtrack from the image track. You know, stop having this master-slave relationship 
and let it be a conversation. Let them be two intelligent beings. And the soundtrack is saying this and the image track is saying that, but they're, it's a conversation. It's not like they're not in lockstep. And counterpoint. And, and there's total counterpoint in there. Disagreements, but the disagreements are illuminating. And as all human disagreements are. And so, so don't just, you know, act like everything's fine. Let everything be as complicated as it actually is. And so uh, King Lear is just one of the most exhilarating movies because the soundtrack itself is a complete world. Um, and you're looking at the images, but meanwhile, what's happening on the soundtrack? It's incredible. So all of which is just to say there's a lot of, um, it was one of the greatest times in my life of meeting him, working with him, and his quality of generosity to me, of course, as you see in the film, is very droll. <laughs> it's very, very amusing. And at the same time, you know, to say, okay, your character is going to be William Shakespeare Jr. the fifth, <laughs> which is like a, a super generous and an incredible put down all at the same time. And it is very touching because again, for me with John Luke, you know, he's a master portrait artist. And it's, it's like, you know, you're looking at Picasso after Picasso after Picasso. And he's making portraits. He's just making the most exquisite portraits of Molly. He's making incredible portraits of Burgess Meredith, for God's sake. And he's just, when he looks at people, he's really looking. And you see the intensity of the gaze and he's seeing so much. That's very, very rare because a lot of films are made the way a lot of conversations are made. People never really looking at each other, looking past each other or just looking at the general picture rather than really deep into somebody's eyes and saying, what, what, who are you? What are you doing? And Jean-Luc's beautiful way of looking was incredible. The other thing that was that I learned for my whole life from that film was we were constantly filming in incredibly photogenic places. And he never once looks at those places in the That's camera. Right. He's always, and I learned that, and I, it stays with me my whole life, always point the camera away from the view. And he always points at something you would never look at. And he makes that the focus of the scene. And, 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 and meanwhile, there's this incredible vision. We were always filming next to, you know, the lake outside Geneva and these incredible visions, never looked at it. He really would point the camera at the ground at, at that rock and at somebody's shoe, and, you know, whatever. And it would just, you know, always with a kind of groundedness and humility. It was very, very powerful. And um, yeah, I mean, what a amazing artist in the history of art. He's 90 now. Yes, and there's a new film that I'm not allowed to talk about today, but we're showing it at Telluride that has footage of him from this year. It's not his film. It's made by a brilliant young Iranian uh, director, and she has really he's given her incredible incredible images and he's in this film which you would never guess 
but it's of course a film about aging and it's quite overwhelming it starts as a kind of joke and then the later phases of the film are unforgettable and you see Jean-Luc in a amazing place of vulnerability uh, which you don't see often and the film is is unforgettable so anyway I I'm not allowed to talk more about it now because the Telluride program has not been announced but it's a it's it's a kind of amazing masterpiece and about about the aging of a great monster and and that Lear that you did with Godard was also towards the end of Burgess Meredith's life. At the very end. I mean, that was basically his last performance. Did you have any time with him, any interesting interaction with him? No, I mean, there were, of course, there were so many of stories of his youth, but that I was obsessed with all the WPA, Orson Welles stuff and all that. He did not want to go there. <laughs> and he was, you know, he was he was writing his late you know his late years so what he did was of course we were in switzerland godard would choose not to talk to us for a few days so burgess would call up wealthy industrialists he knew in the area and they'd take us out to you know 10 course meals and you saw burgess living the life of a great star and somebody who's you know a man of the world who's been here done that done everything so we saw much more of burgess's kind of grand seigneur thing uh and and that's how we ate <laughs> while jean-luc was working on the script <laughs> how did it work out explaining shakespeare to woody allen well i mean you don't spend you don't waste your time doing that you know you just you, you stay as as straightforward as possible and and uh you know i mean Explaining Shakespeare to anybody is it has to be their Shakespeare. It can't be your Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. So it's it's more it's less about explaining it and more about creating the space for them to exist in it. But no part of Woody Allen exists in Shakespeare. He doesn't really think that way, and he doesn't think of himself that way at all. And so it's a shoe that doesn't fit. And so that's what's in the film is you, you get that it's a shoe that doesn't fit and you get that it's awkward and you get that it's, it's uh, some kind of mistake. And, and, and again, with Jean-Luc, you don't know who's doing what to whom all the time. Woody, of course, just wanting, to be helpful, said, of course, I'll appear in John Luke's film, but had no idea what that meant. <laughs> Nobody did until this crazy moment of that shoot and what he was available for those two hours. And so Jean-Luc shot something uh, in the, you know, whatever floor of the Brill building mm. you know, was nearby. So everything was, you know, it was near the hotel. It was near, everything was near. And that's how Jean-Luc worked. Everything was near his home in Switzerland. Everything was, you know, making a film out of things that already kind of had your fingerprints on them. And and so it's both a, an epic picture and totally intimate and private and a totally enclosed world. 
you've spoken so much over the years about the state of cinema and I want, wanted to ask you about two filmmakers of, of the American avant-garde in particular that I am quite fond of. One is Maya Darren and the other is Stan Brackage. Did you get into their stuff at all? Well, I, I actually have a whole DVD of a bunch of Maya Darren films that I haven't seen yet sitting right here. <laughs> so Maya's coming up later this week. Uh, uh, but obviously, um, you know, the Haitian stuff, that's our future. Meanwhile, uh, Stan, I only got to know very at the end, again, just before he left the world, but the, the Rotterdam Film Festival that I, I was a participant in for a number of years, um, did a complete retrospective, uh, and... Stan and I were in the same hotel and we had breakfast every morning and and I went to all the screenings and that was an amazing window into Stan uh, and with Stan and that was that was exhilarating. So I got a, a just an incredible Stan Brackage immersion uh, just before the end. And yeah, super thrilling, super thrilling. And again, you know, images of what film can be in film you know, is more like a Picasso painting than it is like a Hollywood movie. And, you know, that idea that, you know, it's a painting and like a piece of music, you can't simply read it. It has a whole bunch of things in it that don't reduce. And that's, uh, that's exhilarating. Do you have any favorites? I have to say no because you I they showed everything so there were all kinds of crazy things happening. It was it was pretty exciting. I mean the one <laughs> there's an old Telluride story that I again I probably shouldn't tell but <laughs> Tarkovsky finally came to Telluride and it was this incredible moment and and Stan was there that year and so Stan took Tarkovsky into the hotel room and showed him, like, I forget which film. And Tarkovsky just looked at the screen and then looked at the floor the whole time and said, this is, my eyes are hurting. Uh. And couldn't even look. Uh, so, you know, it's it's that thing of there are worlds and there are worlds and there are worlds. And what's so beautiful about film is there are so many worlds. And we tend to think film is one world and or two or maybe three but of course the beauty of film is that it is like music it's pretty infinite it's almost like tarkovsky was about static and stillness and and stan was about movement yeah and i think tarkovsky was you know investigating the question of the nature of the soul and Stan was way into life itself. <laughs> and not, not about soul, but the meeting of the human and the non-human in a super powerful way. And allowing the human to be in the non-human and allowing the non-human to testify. I met him once 
I guess it was in the 80s. And I so wanted to do music for one of his films. And of course, that's not a big interest there, you know? Right. <laughs> he did start to use a few things right towards the end. But I gave him a cassette and then I never heard from him. But I did uh, do a piece in his memory, which was all, uh, well, it was uh, one layer of it was microphonic sounds. So all things that were just amplified to the nth degree that you would never be able to identify, which I thought connected with his way of seeing. Oh, yes. And then I, and, and then I played live percussion while that tape of the microphonic stuff went on. And uh, I haven't played it since the 80s, but I thought it worked quite well. And I never got a chance to play it for him. But he, that's the visual world heavily influencing the, the, the sounds. Wow. Wow. Greg, beautiful. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> Peter, I'm such a big fan of your work with John Adams. And there's such an amazing history there between the two of you. I, I, I do have a favorite piece of yours. The two of you did called Dr. Atomic. <laughs> and I have a million questions, but I'll try to go easy on you. No, no, go for it. I mean, go okay. for it. That, that, that piece has a million questions. It really does. Let me start just by, by opening up and saying to you that uh, I'm a science geek. I find science to be fascinating. When I first realized that someone was treating Oppenheimer as a tragic figure, I thought, yeah, that's for me, that I know what that is. I, I've read about him. I've, I feel it. I taste it. And so when you started to put that whole concept together, and I, I, I do want to know about the construction of the libretto, but, but just talk to me a little bit about Oppenheimer, because I don't think people realize just what he how he figures in even into the the pacifism movement to the to the bigger questions of what science is in humanity what it means why did you how did you land on that well just to say uh i mean this is a project that actually came knocking which is so interesting um uh uh uh, Pamela Rosenberg, who was running the San Francisco Opera, uh, wanted to do, a, a, you know, a season of Faust operas. And so she decided that that Oppenheimer was Faust and was a, a Faustian bargain. And, um, and, and so she called us together, we, we brought Alice Goodman to to San Francisco to meet with her. And uh, <laughs> it was bizarre. Uh, I mean, clearly, you could feel the theatricality of it. I've always resisted in a certain way. And I, I said to, you know, when 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 Steve Reich made the piece about uh, about bikini, you know, for me, I, I always have a very strong feeling that some things art is not qualified to engage in. Uh, 
because art makes something dealable with and in some way decorative. And so for me, like you could not have a convincing piece of work about the Holocaust. You, you know, you can't say six million people had to die so we can have a second act. You know, I, I'm sorry, it, it, it's beyond the pale. And certain things remain, as Samuel Beckett said, unspeakable. And for me, Hiroshima is one of those things that I never want to turn into an aesthetic event in any way. Um, and I don't want to reduce to let it be graspable as an aesthetic event, because it should remain as something that is beyond the pale. And and the um, and <laughs> uh, Alice Goodman said, "This is not a Faustian piece." <laughs> and she said, "Robert Oppenheimer is not Faust. Faust signed away his eternal soul, and Robert Oppenheimer wasn't sure that he had one." which was an incredible, <laughs> incredible way of putting it. Uh, and we started working with Alice and I did what I always do with Alice, which is do a lot of research, gather the research and send it to her and mark certain things as this will be helpful, this will be interesting. And then uh, Alice decided she didn't want to write this piece. And she stepped away from it. And uh, the images of Oppenheimer and, and, and Teller, you know, in kind of butting heads, two Jewish intellectuals in the middle of those years, uh, was something she didn't want to enter. So I had been doing all the, this research and I had all of the research my fingertips and it suddenly realized that it would make sense to do an actual documentary opera in the sense that we have what people really said and you don't have to make up something you can actually that is what they said and some of the things are what they said they said in their memoirs but a lot of other things are you know from the freedom of information act we do have all the fbi files of the intercepted phone calls and so we actually do know what people actually said. Meanwhile, uh, I was uh, working with John Else, uh, the incredible you know, documentary filmmaker who made the great film The Day After Trinity and interviewed all of that generation of atomic scientists before they died. And he had, he put his files at my disposal and he had transcripts of all of his interviews with them and that was really incredible stuff and then of course because it's a work of art you don't want it just to be quote-unquote documentary but you need it to be poetic and it was really discovering the voice of muriel rukeyser uh, that created a voice for the women and a voice of conscience uh, uh, in mid-century America, uh, a, a female voice that both understood science very deeply and wrote about science with incredible grasp, but also knew that something was amiss and wrote about that, frankly. Meanwhile, of course, uh, Oppenheimer was carrying in his pocket uh, Baudelaire and the Bhagavad Gita. So that also gave two more poetic and 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 cosmic voices 
that could give dimension to the whole piece. So John and I really set out and I, you know, sent John all this stuff. And John made, of course, incredible musical shapes uh, out of it and created kind of taught film scenes out of many parts of it. And of course, climaxing with, you know, one of the great settings, you know, in John's life or anyone else's life, which is the John Donne uh, Batter My Heart. And so, so that was a really an incredible, um, the, the, the piece really took off and and john you know just poured himself into it and wrote some of his greatest music and and the um as always we well not as always uh we knew the cast and 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 we really one of the most difficult things was not really finding the right kitty oppenheimer uh for a little while that was that was tricky because you know when you when you cast someone before an opera exists you just you don't know how the opera is going to emerge and so so that was that was a little elusive for a while uh but the san francisco opera at that period gave us amazing rehearsal conditions and we were able to rehearse very very we had two rehearsal periods one in the summer when the opera was closed so people could really be concentrated and then another uh, which was, you know, in the season leading into the premiere. So, so the piece, we, 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 the performers got to really live with it. Uh, and that was amazing. The orchestra, the chorus, everybody really lived with it. And, 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 and then we had all these programs going, uh, the physics department at UC Berkeley, uh, the, the Exploratorium, of course, founded by Frank's brother, uh, in San Francisco, all of these organizations participated in talks and in uh, in uh, historical insights and reminiscences. So we had such a rich surround because the topic was a Bay Area topic uh, when we were premiering this, and there were amazing people to be in conversation with. And John was very deeply in conversation with the you know <laughs> physicists in Berkeley, you know. Uh, one of whom played the clarinet when you know it, the discussions went very far and it was a it was literally the right subject for the right place at the right time and so the the range of input that created an extremely rich rich soil um was was extraordinary for that piece and of course pamela rosenberg supported it to the hilt as a, a vision of her her era uh, of the san francisco opera so then, of course, any piece that's complex, you have to just live with it. And we kept living with it and we got it to Amsterdam where we made a, 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 a quite an amazing video of it. And then and then we got it to Chicago where one more time we were knocking on the door of nuclear history and the Fermi Labs people showed up. Uh, all of the key you know, sites at the University of Chicago. Uh, and the people running those labs all came and participated. And meanwhile, with the Bhagavad Gita, we could talk to Wendy, Wendy um, Doniger. And, and, you know, the great, I mean, the, the University of Chicago, incredible department of, of, of Sanskrit studies and so on. I mean, we had such great people to discuss this piece with. And, and it was part of the history of Chicago. Uh, 
the nuclear, the, another city where this was part of the nuclear history of the world. And we had major, at that point, you know, uh, there was a, you know, we were dealing, negotiating the Iran uh, uh, nuclear agreements and a number of major Nobel Prize winning physicists came forward to the Dr. Atomic uh, gatherings and said, you know, this was a mistake. All nuclear weapons have to be eliminated. All of them, not one, can be left. And the world is at risk if there's even one. And um, so that was a really powerful history of the peace. And then we had one more huge step, which is the Santa Fe Opera decided they wanted to do it. I was always asking them if they would do it, but it for years they said no. And then finally in the last season, uh, of uh, Charles' um, incredible uh, 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 years there, he he wanted to have Dr. Atomic as his final season, his final season. And he said to me, the most important thing for him is that Native Americans would be involved on stage and not be played by extras and not be, you know, people in makeup <laughs> acting like they were Indians. You know, and and Charles, of course, grew up in in New Mexico, and he grew up knowing personally so many people in the pueblos. So that commitment was very powerful, and that did shift the piece. And for the three years leading into the Santa Fe performances, for one thing, the set was already there in a certain way. So we we made a new production, and uh, of course, the casting of Julia Bullock as as Mrs. Oppenheimer was a complete transformation, a complete transformation of the piece. And a younger generation of singers took on these roles. And that was really, really interesting. Meanwhile, uh, Three Pueblos, San Ildefonso, uh, Santa Clara, and Tezuki Pueblo came together to create a ceremony that was danced on the stage of the Santa Fe Opera before the opera began. And then they danced the ceremony that was in Oppenheimer's dream in Act Two to the music of John Adams. There was actual sacred dancing, which is something I never dared put on stage. And the Pueblos decided, no, this is an important thing to do for the next generation as a gesture of peace. And of course, the dancers they chose were kids because they wanted to make the point about the future. Meanwhile, we got in touch with the Downwinders associations, and we had also on stage many, many people from uh, uh, a range of Downwinders associations who had lost family members for now three generations to thyroid cancer. and those people could be on stage with the singer playing General Groves, as he said, we will not evacuate these nearby communities. And the results of that were, there was a, there were witnesses on stage with the singer. And so we were actually staging New Mexico history in New Mexico, eight miles from where it happened. So with participants whose lives were completely shaped and changed. We did a series of, for three years, meetings of 
scientists from Los Alamos, Indians from the Pueblos, and downwinders, all meeting each other and telling stories because most people didn't know the other groups. And to realize that this history is still hidden, you know, this, this, this history, which was truly scripted for the movies after the fact. And most of this history remains this created history. So what it was to get inside that history, which of course is what John did with his music, and what Miura Rukeyser was able to do. And, you know, uh, the line that's not in the opera, but it's one of my favorite lines of, of Miura Rukeyser is, um, the world is not made of atoms. It is made of stories. So this piece came to life in Santa Fe in a completely new level. And it was this summer that we had these just shocking storms. And so the performances of Dr. Tomic were windswept with lightning everywhere. And it was just, it was incredibly dramatic. And the piece came to life in all these ways none of us could have imagined when we were making the premiere years before in in San Francisco. So all of which is to say, the piece itself is very, very rich, but that's also because the loam that it has, it, that it's rooted in, it was so rich. And John Adams was just poured himself into nuclear history, but also, as I said, getting to know the, the scientists in Berkeley and debating all these points with them and going very, very deep into it. And as you know, John Donne is a formative voice in John Adams' life with uh, Harmonium. And, and so in many ways, it's just one of John's most powerful, powerful, sustained and deeply, deeply integrated utterances of his entire body of work. You feel that all roads are leading to Dr. Atomic in very, very powerful ways. And so, and of course, as always, when you don't know how to do something, how do you stage or create music for the countdown to the first atomic explosion? I mean, what a challenge. And John went there. It is one of the most impressive elements of the whole thing is your, your first time experience, you're saying, how are they going to do that? <laughs> What's going to happen when we get to that moment? Not And backing up a little bit, the fact that it's all the 24 hours before the test. I mean, it's the, the compact time. Yes. The compression of time only makes the thing more intense and more volatile. And I love that when you get there, you hear the Japanese woman's voice asking for a drink of water. It's that devastating. Is, that is John's, I mean, John simply did that really spontaneously. And he oh. really, it was not foreseen. And John, that was John's last gesture. That was John's last gesture. And uh, really powerful. And, and you know, again, it's it's such a, 
the the 24 hour thing i i really said okay we're going to be classical about this and this is aristotelian this is like racine this is like you know i need this sense of the stakes being that high right as they are in greek tragedy as they are in racinian drama where the highest moral questions are in front of the human race and and in and you're there are 24 hours there's a day and a night and that's that is um yeah, that, that is what holds the piece in, a, in a, a grip. And then it lets John do these strange meandering things also <laughs> in the second act, you know, when because John makes the first act just relentless. And then the second act, you know, in the middle at 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., you just lose it. And, and things are drifting in and out and you can't keep track. And you can't finish that thought. And, you know, all of the kind of delirium that takes over as well is so incredible when John is so unbelievably hard headed in act one of the score. And, and you know, and every moment is prepared and arrives on schedule. And then the second act, you just go, what happened? And <laughs> And you're you're really in that space of reverie, which is um, you know uh, my friend Bill Viola always says you know you know when you're an artist when you're falling, and you know you're falling, and you know you can't catch yourself. And that sense of the second act, where everybody knows it's all falling, and nobody knows how to stop it, how to catch yourself. And you can just feel that viscerally. I mean, John's music is just incredible. Also, and, all the different voices that get to chime in about this impending, unbelievable moment and the, 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 the palpable fears, yeah, the suspense. I love that John references horror film music you know from from the uh the cold war era of monster movies that's another huge thing for me well and you know john john literally the first word in john's you know when we spoke was Verez. i mean john <laughs> really wanted to go for that the sound of that era which for him was Verez, was this music from outer space the music from beyond the music from the unthinkable was that Verez brought that texture to America. And and then Hollywood went with it. But definitely Verez was on John's mind. And obviously the other thing in the in the body of the work is this, you know, the two reigning composers of the 40s from opposite sides of the the musical spectrum were Stravinsky and Schoenberg. And 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 they were enemies arch enemies and rivals and john creates a score which is both has this stravinskyan relentless you know symphony in three movements relentless forward energy and these dark poisonous schoenberg harmonies and i also and, thought symphony of psalms oh yes totally no i this i mean exact i mean again the the the, the there is stravinsky yeah. you know best of and they're Schoenberg best of. And one is this, you know, pellucid, focused, sharp, you know, urgent thing. And the other is this magma that's just, you know, melting down in front of your face. 
and so uh, before your eyes. And so, so the, the two musical elements are fused to each other. And that's what's incredible, is John making those languages that were supposed to never the twain shall meet. And, and in that opera, the twain meets. Honorable mention. Now, I, I love Batter My Heart, Three Person God. Love it. Love it. But are you, am I in your light? Thank you. That's, I, I couldn't agree more. When John said that, none of us could believe it. None of us could believe it. And of course, you know, it's such a great poem from Muriel Rukeyser. Such a great poem. And John immediately humanizes the entire story. And, and it immediately becomes intimate. It immediately becomes flesh. It immediately becomes a marriage. It immediately becomes, you know, all the things that human beings are most sensitive to and that can't even be articulated. And you get, you're, you're under the skin. You're in such places of sensitivity. And again, we all glaze over and become incredibly insensitive when we talk about the death of millions. And suddenly when it's the person you're living with and it's about which side of the bed you're on and when you're turning the light out <laughs> suddenly everything gets incredibly sensitive like you know to this level of you know nuclear <laughs> you know unbelievable nuclear sensitivity <laughs> the slightest move the slightest twitch carries incredible incredible repercussions so you know and john got to that delicate delicate ticking thing that's between two people it's just it's such an amazing work that when when john wrote that we all just lost it what a magical and perfect moment hmm. and it's such an amalgam as you say you know the baudelaire and the baga gita and 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 these desperate elements that you would think well it's a hodgepodge but they just web together so perfectly to tell the story from all of these different angles. And I guess that's what's so profound for me about it is you could have just made it about Oppenheimer, but it's it's not because then there's Teller and then there's the military personnel and then the underlings who are being berated for you know, not giving the answers that they want, you know, which is so familiar today. And again, what's incredible is, you know, there it, this material does exist. So, you know, the Freedom of Information Act, you know, has gotten us things that we were never supposed to know about and never supposed to see and certainly never supposed to hear. And so, again, that those are now choruses <laughs> set to music by John Adams. It's just is phenomenal. And you really are hearing the sound of history. And, 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 and as you said, I mean, this, because it's John's music, it's the future. It, it, it is, I mean, all of John's pieces are quote unquote, historic. I mean, it's one of the interesting things about John. I mean, most of this material is not set in the present day. You know, most of John's operas, you know, Nixon in China is 1972. And, 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 and they are period pieces in one way, but John's music is not. And that's really what's interesting is, yes, John evokes certain of the sonorities and certain of the gestures of the period, but in fact, the music is completely his, completely contemporary and completely moving forward. Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly powerful piece. I, 
I wish that there could have been a video of the Santa Fe, but as you've told me in our previous conversations, there would be no way to really truly capture it. You truly had to be there. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, uh, it, it, you needed to feel the weather in your face. You needed to actually, you know, be outdoors at night on one of those summer nights in New Mexico when it decides to storm. And, and at, which is the drama of that, of that second act. And the, um, and, and also it, it was, you know, the set was just where we were. And, and a camera, you know, you couldn't light the Sangre de Cristo mountains so the camera could pick them up <laughs> at, after dark. <laughs> you had to have know that we watched the sun go down and we went, watched those mountains go into dark for the second act. And, you know, you, you all those things that you, you, and again, the, 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 the Native American ceremony uh is something again like we discussed with messian it's something that you know video can't begin to give you what presence is that's happening and how a small gesture becomes something you remember your whole life and i want to tell our audience but i i, I really want to tell you peter that when we started talking about dr atomic a summer storm just started in my neighborhood here in new jersey and maybe you can hear some of it in the background, but it's going on. Right I see now. it. I see the trees rustling. <laughs> right That's now. That's perfect. That's what did you find Richard Feynman to be an interesting source for this stuff? I wondered why he wasn't ever really in this piece. Was it too many people? Because he he was a fascinating source to me about what went on at Los Alamos. I mean, he was such a lightning rod. He was so brilliant, but in a way, he's his own story. And and so once we really knew that Oppenheimer was the through line and Kitty Oppenheimer was the through line and the foil in a way was the two foils were Edward Teller and and uh, General Groves and and that the uh, and and the young uh, the young next generation uh, uh, scientist, Feynman just couldn't fit into any of those geometries. And, and, and so, um, I mean, God knows the stories are incredible. And I mean, what a brilliant man, but truly he is his own opera, no question. Yeah. <laughs> just the way he negotiated dealing with all the bureaucracy and all of the, uh, the clever ways he had of dealing with things in that situation just always blew me away. Now, he was, he, he, let's put it this way, never in his life was he a supporting character. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was always the the center of what's whatever was going on. So, you know, we just have to respect that in this case. And, and, and really, again, to deal with who Oppenheimer was facing, the challenge was coming from his own graduate students and from the US military and then from the actual, you know, future ultra cold warrior, Mr. Teller, and this question of, of there will be no limits. And so I think that those, those figures set the moral center 
and 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 show you what the decisions were that Oppenheimer was struggling with. I think that on that particular night, I mean, I think that Oppenheimer's you know issues with with Feynman were in, in other realms, <laughs> but that night Feynman was not really in the picture, and 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 so. Uh, but yes, one day. <laughs> That's so great. I, I just want to open this this door to get some air in here. Sorry. Oh, sure. You also have a, a recent piece with John Adams uh, entitled Girls of the Golden West. And th this is an interesting period, too, to be looking at because the gold rush was only recently have I become, you know, aware that this was an international event. The gold rush was not the story necessarily of just the American West, but an international event. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, it was literally in newspapers in Cairo, uh, in St. Petersburg, uh, in, in China, uh, in India. Um, in Brazil. So there were people coming to West, you know, the Western United States to California from everywhere. And so it was the world's first truly multicultural society, you know, and, and, and that's quite amazing. And meanwhile, the press, certain aspects of the press are pretty much the same. That is to say, a lot of the articles <laughs> about how to go to California and, and, and strike rich were totally written from the imagination. <laughs> like, actually, that wasn't how you get there at all. And, you know, and like, it was this kind of crazy journalism that, uh, so of course, what people went through uh, was beyond anything they ever dreamt of. So it, 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 that was pretty wild. And of course, the tall tales didn't stop with those articles, as once everybody got to California, the tall tales kept coming. And, and, and that, that whole tradition of getting rich what you tell people what you don't tell people and what you tell yourself and what you don't tell yourself i mean that's of course what that piece is about and then the need which we've experienced subsequently to say we're competing with people for this money for this gold and the way we're going to take it all ourselves is going to be along racial lines and we will actually make it clear what white supremacy means and who owns this place and what it means that Chileans and Brazilians will be driven off. Indians will be massacred. Um, Italians and Australians will be <laughs> in trouble. Chinese will be servants. You know, all that stuff is and will be prostitutes. All of those racial lines were drawn incredibly quickly so that the money remained in white hands and not in black hands, although there were plenty of free slaves or escaped slaves who came west. There were black cowboys. There was an incredibly rich array of humanity. And so what it was that within seven years, only white people had the money and everyone else was disenfranchised and forced to work uh, as indentured labor or 
some slaves or some kind of peonage. That's very intense. And it's a, and, and the, the Supreme Court decisions that, you know, said that the first decision by the California Supreme Court announced that um, Chinese people were from the Negroid race. <laughs> And therefore they were actually black people, therefore they had no rights, therefore they couldn't own land, therefore none of this gold was theirs. You know, to watch the legal apparatus get put in place of white supremacy is quite shocking. And it's a it's a very vivid picture. And uh, and and it happened in a very short time. And of course, you know, the white people were recent arrivals because the Spanish and the Mexicans had been there for for at least a century. So the, even the official landowners were Spanish speaking. And again, all of them driven out. So it's a very, it was a shocking image of white supremacy uh, at that at that moment in history. And of course, with everybody on this get rich quick daydream, which is what our country has been through in this last generation. And uh, and you see the disastrous results, essentially. Uh, so that piece that piece does go inside that violence and inside the also the hope and the joy and some of the promise that so many people brought with them uh, to the new world. What was your vision for for the visual for the staging of that piece? Well, you know, uh, in the production, uh, we all, uh, the, the design team, we all went to Calaveras State Park where there's this just astonishing redwood stump. And this is a, this stump became very famous in California history. A bunch of miners just for the hell of it decided to chop down this redwood. And it took them a month. And at the end, it fell over. And there's this giant stump. And they danced on it. They held concerts and danced. And that stump became the beginning of Charles, uh, I mean, of, of, of um, Muir's uh, movement, uh, uh, ecological movement and said, can you believe they would sacrifice a California redwood, one of these trees that is older than humanity? And what do they do after they cut it down? They dance on it. Now, if that doesn't show you people are stupid, and that was, that was the beginnings of the conservation movement, was that stump. So we decided to locate the second act on that stump. <laughs> and, <laughs> And the sense that, you know, obviously the the linkages of the white supremacy movement and obviously the 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 hoarding of the money and obviously the 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 disenfranchising of people of color, you know, all was also an ecological crisis. And and so all of that is kind of in the main image that's going on. Uh, and is is an image of the violence that's underpinning everything. And uh, that's, you know, inside basic American structures. And, um, and that really is still unhealed. 
and it's in our generation we're trying to address. And you also are able to turn it into a feminist story. Well, what's great is because the women were so rare. So they had a certain type of power and a certain type of you, you know, kind of visibility. They were unique. And and the and of course Dame Shirley wrote these incredible letters to her sister. And they are articulate and sharp and absolutely acutely observed and very funny and very dry and not moralizing, but just wise. And her tone of voice, John just fell in love with it. And John wrote many, many, many passages <laughs> for her voice and for her gorgeous pro that are not in the opera because there was just too much <laughs> and ended up having to be trimmed. But I have to say, John just loved writing for her voice. And the fact that he was writing for Julia Bullock at the same time didn't hurt. And so John just wrote and wrote and wrote. And to hear John write this, you can hear the pleasure in John's in John's musical writing, the sheer, the pleasure, the instrumental voicings, the it's you hear John in such a good mood. It's it's very beautiful. <laughs> so great. Do you guys have chats about uh, other things you want to do together? Well, you know, John is doing is in, embarked on a big project right now. And, and I'm not in there because I'm doing a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and so, you know, I'm sure when, when that's all over, we'll see you know, <laughs> where things are. Uh, but at the moment, we're all working like crazy. So um, we'll, we will check in a little later. Look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great team. Well, I mean, it's a privilege to work with John because his, his depth of responsiveness and his discovery of a musical language for each opera, because I think it's I think it's really rare. I don't think there's another composer who you can say really found a different language for every opera. Well, Nixon in China, Klinghoffer. Right. right. I mean, there's the the leap from Nixon in China to Klinghoffer is total, and then you know, and then how you arrive at Ceiling Sky, how you arrive at El Nino, how you arrive at the flowering tree you know each of these pieces john finds a completely new musical world world and 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 the the tone and temperature and the sound world of each piece is so different and i think that's truly astonishing and and that's john's first of all vast amount of incredible skill and musicality that you know his john adams musical spectrum is so huge he can go anywhere he wants to go that's pretty astounding and uh and the range of voices and 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 characters that he has written music for if you look across that body of opera it's unbelievable <laughs> so Yes, it, I think it's it's kind of an unmatched achievement in the history of opera that a composer has that kind of range. I might say the same thing about you, Peter Sellers. The range, well, <laughs> the range of interests, the grasp, 
the depth? Well, there's a lot to work on. And again, what's amazing is we have incredible friends. We have, you know, there's opera is not a solitary art form. You get to work with people you admire uh, in all kinds of ways from all kinds of fields and backgrounds and histories and cultures. And so that's the joy of the art form is that it's collaborative. And every group of collaborators brings also worlds and worlds into the process that you could not have imagined yourself. So. And what are your thoughts on the state of opera today? Well, what's exciting is the state of opera is basically going to be small. COVID came to make sure of that. And, and I think what we're learning is a whole generation of of composers are now writing small operas that fit in the palm of your hand and that you know you have four people and it's an opera you have six people it's an opera you have seven people it's an opera and the singers are playing instruments when they're not singing and you know i mean it's this idea that opera once again can fit in the palm of your hand i think we're all recovering from this gargantuan uh, image of opera which is this bloated you know climax of the age of empire uh, level of the biggest theater in town, the biggest orchestra, the biggest chorus, the biggest everything. And it's such a joy to be back with Monteverdi, you know, and and to actually, you know, be hanging out uh, with, you know, okay, 10 interesting people, well, four interesting people that then becomes 10 interesting people, and you have Orfeo. You know, this incredible, just intimate, process that opera is and that can be. And in the case of, of Monteverdi, in the case of Bach, in the case of Handel, this idea that a handful of people can create an opera, that's just thrilling. And that it's not just about size. It's really about everything else. And for so long, opera was had to take the biggest bite out of the arts budget. And, and, and so in this age where we're looking for equity, in this age where we're looking for, you know, shared uh, uh, sense of equality across art forms, across communities, across uh, 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 human histories, uh, opera was taking more than its share of the available arts budget. And I think it's appropriate that opera is now moving back into a more modest relationship and again into a more collaborative place. And I think that's just fantastic and very, very exciting. I'm very excited about the upcoming Wayne Shorter opera. He's been doing a sci-fi you know, Again, I'm hearing all kinds of things, you know, from, you know, whispers backstage. It seems incredible. It just seems incredible. And of course, the 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 folks that are working on it what an incredible group of people so um let's see where it goes esperanza spalding can't do better <laughs> that's starting at the top <laughs> and sci-fi too yeah all of it all of it it's just all good so let's just yes all all wind to their sails like just totally totally Peter, I could go on and on. Oh, 
<laughs> well, Greg, you know, we will. Uh, we have long lives and we're going to keep going. <laughs> but it's so great to see you today. And, um, and compare notes and catch up. And, you know, obviously we'll do this again soon. I hope so. Yeah. Always looking for more stuff from you. Well, again, just bless you. Bless you for being there and being there with everything that you're alert to and sensitive to and feeling and recognizing is like, thank you. Really, thank you. Just and uh, more to come. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a beautiful evening. <laughs> I hope so. It's It's still torrential rain out there. Maybe it will make you know it when you live in California, where you know we're in the ninth year of a drought. You know, any time it rains is a blessing. You're just so you're simply only grateful for rain. <laughs> That's the best thing that could happen. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Peter. Let it pour. <laughs> Good night. Lots and lots of love. Lots of love. <laughs>